you would please turn with me in your Bibles to the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 10. What Jesus said earlier in the 31st verse of Mark 10 is still being explained and illustrated in very upfront and personal ways. In verse 31 we read, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Last week we saw for the third recorded time in verses 32 through 40. 32 through 34, Jesus tell his disciples what was about to happen to him in Jerusalem, where he's heading now. And we recognized that the disciples just don't understand the need for the Messiah to suffer and die even though everything in the Old Testament points to the divine necessity of this work, the sinless sacrifice for sin by the incarnate Son of God upon the cross, they don't get it. The disciples' expectations of glory and of the overthrow of Rome and the establishment of the Messianic kingdom as a political and geographical reality were really all these men could see at this point. And even though Jesus clearly explains what's about to happen, his disciples were completely missing the point, which was that even though Jesus is God in the flesh, he is the Messiah and must die for his own, for those he came to save. And in our text today, in verse 35 through 45, something happens on that road to Jerusalem that perfectly illustrates why every single one of us needs a Savior. Just four verses from Jesus' summary statement of, but, uh, but many who are first will be last and the last first, just four verses later, and right after Jesus' foretelling of his very soon-to-be betrayal, his condemnation, his mocking, spitting, flogging, crucifixion, and resurrection, we see his own disciples vying for position in Jesus' kingdom. There's nothing more here than pride and selfishness magnified by the ugly reality that we all live in. And each one of us knows so well. If you are able, would you please stand as I read Mark 10, verses 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. There's a lot at stake here in this passage. Let me give you some context. About 40 years ago, John MacArthur wrote the following perspective of how this same basic problem had already become the status quo in much of the church. Those of you who are under 40, sorry. Some of us were in our prime 40 years ago. It is a long time ago. Quote, The promotion of self-esteem, self-fulfillment, and self-glory has become a major industry that ranges from exercise programs to motivation for executive success, et cetera, et cetera. Tragically, the cultism, the cult of selfism has found its way into evangelical Christianity. Books, seminars, conferences, magazines, and, organ- and organizations that promote self under the guise of personal spiritual development abound. The movement has found little resistance in the church, which often seems determined to beat the world at its own fleshly game. From countless sources, claims are heard that God's great design for his people is health, prosperity, success, happiness, and self-fulfillment. The Bible's teaching of suffering and cross-bearing for Christ's sake are either ignored altogether or foolishly explained away. A weak gospel, easy believism, and non-sacrificial Christian living are the reflections of this new evangelical selfism. Whenever the church has been spiritually strong, it has distrusted its own wisdom and strength, and instead Look to the Lord's. It has shunned its own glory and sought only his. It has condemned pride and exalted humility. Times of spiritual awakening are inevitably characterized by a sincere 
sense of brokenness, contrition, and unworthiness. There is always reverential fear of the Word of God, which, working through genuine meekness, gives the church great power. Like Paul, the church becomes strong when it knows it's weak. But a great part of the Western church has become self-indulgent, self-satisfied, and self-reliant claiming numerical and financial growth as evidence of spiritual blessing. It has replaced sacrifice with success, suffering with self-satisfaction, and godly obedience with fleshly indulgence. That's just part of what he wrote. Those words or in finally put in his commentary on Matthew. This has always been a problem amongst God's people, like it is with every person. And it is especially true as we look at James and John in our passage this morning. Even though Jesus' disciples had left much to follow him. They very often could not focus on much more than what they would gain, what they would get out of it. And not only had Jesus now told them clearly what was ahead for him, he had also spoken to them specifically about what they should expect and how they needed to be willing to endure the same kinds of things as him. In chapter 8, Jesus spoke about the necessity to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. In chapter 9, Jesus had already rebuked them for being so concerned about who was the greatest. In other words, this conversation had already happened at least once before. And then taught them about the absolute necessity of living in humility. And how did he do that? He used children. The children that were being pushed away from him, he asked them to come. He made his point. And yet, what was their primary concern? Peter revealed that in chapter 10, 28, when he was asking... What then will we have, since we have left everything and followed you? You can see this thread throughout each gospel. And tragically, many Christians' number one question is still, what's in it for me? And we need to ask ourselves, whether that's our main concern. Sometimes that question is disguised as a real motive, but many times we just see it blatantly demanded. And we must realize that our culture feeds this desire to be self-serving and that the real name for it is lust. 
The tragedy, as we already heard, is that much of the church has joined in, trying to beat the world at its own game. Well, John MacArthur was one of many who four decades ago saw it coming and wrote about it. John Piper wrote in a Christianity Today article in 1977 this. Today, the first and greatest commandment is, Thou shalt love thyself. And the explanation for almost every interpersonal problem. Teachers, you know this, get ready. And the explanation for almost every interpersonal problem is thought to lie in somebody's low self-esteem. Sermons, articles, and books have pushed this idea into the Christian mind. And it's a rare congregation, Piper writes, for example, that does not stumble over the theology of Isaac Watts who wrote hymns. There are 36 hymns by him in our hymnal. But listen to this one. That does not stumble over the theology of Isaac Watts, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. The first stanza of that hymn is, the second part of the first stanza is, Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I. In our old hymnals, that was number 156, and it read, Would he devote that sacred head for a sinner such as I? Yeah, it still says sinner, but it just sounds so much better because all of us are supposed to admit that. Our current hymnal, Trinity Hymnal, and others such as the Hymns of Grace from Grace Community Church, MacArthur's pastor there, read exactly as Watts intended. Do you see his point? Do we get that ooky feeling when we read that? If you understand the darkness and depravity of your own heart, as taught in Scripture, and you don't have a problem with hymn number one, whatever it is in ours, 254. I thought I'd hear pages turning at this point, but I guess you'd believe me. If we don't have a problem with that, then you may have already been accused of believing in this, quote, worm theology, unquote. We are so drawn to any theology which lifts us up above our true condition and need. Just because we are made in the image of God and therefore should show one another respect for the dignity of being created to bear His image does not mean that we can water down the Bible's truth about our true condition as sinners depraved in all areas of our being, and thus in desperate need of the Savior.
Our hearts are idol factories. To one degree or another, we make idols of ourselves more than anything else. Much of the church today is pandering to these self-serving, selfish desires, which, I remind you, is not new. There's nothing new about this. Augustine wrote, Two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly city by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly city by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glorifies in itself. The latter, in the Lord. Calvin wrote, The doctrine of Scripture teaches us to remember that the endowments which God has bestowed upon us are not our own, but his free gifts. And that those who decorate their gifts and endowments as being of their own making betray their ingratitude. And we think it was just the disciples who didn't get this. Well, what was the brother's question as we look at verses 35 through 37? Remember that the disciples were still holding on to the hope that despite what Jesus was telling them about what would happen in Jerusalem, they still expected the unexpected. That Jesus would somehow usher in the promised kingdom and that they would be with him. After all, they'd been with him when he caused some really unbelievable things to happen. True? And they were holding out that what he told them wasn't going to be the way it was, that he would intervene in some glorious, majestic, powerful, unbelievable way. So the brothers, James and John, wanted to be sure of their place in the kingdom around the corner that they hoped for. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We see another reason here why they were nicknamed what? The Sons of Thunder. These guys were bold and brash. But when you read the New Testament, the rest of it, it's almost like, who are these guys now? Who are they? Jesus, you notice, refuses to commit himself. He's not going to make some blind promise. So he demands that they be more specific. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Could they actually desire and think they deserve to have the two highest places of honor? They wanted the prestige and the glory of being exalted. But here's the kicker, especially over the other disciples. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So now let's look at Jesus' answer, beginning in verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. 
I'm sorry, but I just think that's a really gracious statement. I can think of a hundred other ways to put them down in their place right here, right now. And all he says is, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Do you see what he's doing? He asked this in a way that later they will look back and go, whoa, we didn't know. As they fall on their faces in worship. Look at their answer. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. What is Jesus dealing with here in these men? He's dealing with an in-your-face, self-serving ambition. And do you see how foolish their request really was? Jesus tries to make them see this in verse 38, that first verse. But they sound like somebody else in this group. Do they not? Who? Peter. Peter's already had this personal experience once at least. When they said we are able, they obviously had no real idea of what Jesus meant. The cup and being baptized are synonymous terms both referring to suffering and death. Any real difference between the cup and the baptism, the two halves of Jesus' questions here may point to, could be Jesus referring to his active obedience, his choosing to drink the cup of suffering and death, and his passive obedience in submitting to the baptism of suffering and death. I think that's one of the best ways to explain this. To drink the cup signified staying with something to the end, enduring to the end, whatever the cost. And Jesus then tells them, what they would in fact, that they would in fact drink the cup and be baptized or overwhelmed with suffering and death for his sake. But it would not be in their own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit that they would suffer greatly for Christ. James, the first apostle to be martyred. John, suffered greatly and ended his life as a condemned exile on the island of Patmos. Jesus also tells them that it was not up to him to grant such a request in verse 40. In other words, it would not be 
on the basis of favoritism or ambition that such an honor would be given. But entirely on the basis of the Father's sovereign choice. And then we see the other ten apostles' response. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. They were indignant because they really wanted the same honor. And Jesus knows this. And so now he's going to address them all about it. Every parent in here that has multiple children in your home knows what this is like. Who did it? Who said what first? Who did this? Who did that? Divvy up the discipline accordingly. Uh Uh-uh. Jesus just gets them all together. He knows that, that the attitude apparent that came out was really in everyone's hearts. So here he goes. He gathers them all around himself and he lays down the characteristics that his kingdom would be known for. That's what this is. The characteristics that his kingdom would be known for. And here we see Jesus first teaches what true greatness in his kingdom is not. You notice how much he does this when he teaches? He gives both sides to help us get a picture Not only of what it is, but what it's not when he's teaching about some important concept or idea. So first, true greatness in his kingdom is not like the rulers of the Gentiles lording it over their people. This is a picture of political power used to rule down the under your thumb kind of authority on people like a tyrant or dictator would do. And secondly, true greatness in his kingdom is not like the Gentile great ones exercising authority over the people. Well, what's the difference between that and what he just said? A lot. This refers to those who have high personal appeal, and have achieved high stature in the eyes of the world, and who seek to control others by their personal influence. And this differs from, number one, rulers lording it over, because rulers use their sheer power of their position, number one here, And in contrast, the great ones, quote-unquote, use their power of popularity and personality to manipulate other people. Does that cover all the bases? Pretty much. You ever worked in a place under one of those kind of authority structure? Probably most everybody has. You know what's sick? Absolutely sick is when that's true of a Christian organization or a church. It should make us want to throw up. What does Jesus say? Verse 43, But it shall not be so among you. Summing up what true greatness is in Christ's kingdom, 
what it's not. It's not like dictators or tyrants who use their power to control others, making themselves the final authority. It's usually described as walking around, thinking you're walking around on eggshells because anything you do, you feel oppressed, you feel looked at, you feel judged, etc., etc. Secondly, what it's not, it's not like self-seeking leaders who use their personality and popularity and gifts to manipulate gullible followers who really are following them because they want their ears tickled. What they're saying is something they want anyway. So this guy's popular. I want to be like that. I want to be a part of this stream. Let me go hear him. Let me go that way. We could give example after example after example after example of this kind of situation. So let's turn the page and go to what Jesus says, what true greatness in his kingdom is. In verse, the second part of verse 30, 43 through 45. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, if you just step back right here and you realize that these guys are a week away about from seeing everything that Jesus said would happen to him happen? Then they saw him risen. Can you imagine as the dots connected his example of what greatness is as they realized how he died in service for those he came to save. So how does Jesus define true greatness here? It's being willing to serve, not for self-interest, but for God's ultimate interest. And that means not paying attention to or really desiring worldly or temporal accolades or recognition. You ever notice how in our culture, which every culture pretty much is wired this way to some degree, people in every area of our culture get together with people like them, similar gifts, similar working conditions, similar whatever, and have great celebrations telling each other how great they are. Literally. Two, three-hour programs on TV. You can watch it all. It shouldn't mean a hill of beans to us. 
If we really belong to the Lord, the only thing that matters is what he says. What this means is rending spiritual service with excellence and trusting in the Lord for any success. And knowing our bent to want to be recognized, to want to be acknowledged, to want to be respected, on and on and on. That we are extra careful about admitting that in ways that say, no, I just want to serve. It's fine. But all of us have issues to this some degree or So thank goodness we're all in it together. Fellow worms saved by the blood of Jesus. Greatness consists in self-giving and the outpouring of the self in service to others. For whose glory? The glory of God. For knowing that God's name has been lifted up because you've given a gift of love one way or another, however he may have gifted you to be able to do it. Even if you never receive any recognition or thanks, boy, that hurts, doesn't it? Because we want that. We think we have to have it. And this usually means using a word that we don't like, except when we want to look spiritual, and that is the word sacrifice. Sacrifice for the sake of others. An old, old saint wrote this. If I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him. And helping me to keep little in my own eyes. He does use me, but I am so concerned that he uses me And that it is not of me that the work is done. The axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it, he sharpened it, and he used it. The moment he throws the axe aside, it becomes only an old piece of iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. One of the greatest joys, I think, in the Christian life is reading old stuff. Old prayers. We've got many books now that have recorded these in ways that we can almost understand because our vocabulary is so bad compared to 100 years ago or so. And it is amazing how this theme is on every page. Every page. Every prayer. Again, from MacArthur, the cost of true greatness is humble, selfless, and sacrificial service. Willing to serve out of the spotlight where it is hard, uncomfortable, lonely, lonely, and demanding. Willing to withstand criticism without becoming bitter. Willing to be misjudged without becoming defensive. Willing to suffer without giving in to self-pity. 
And you know how you can tell if you're doing this? When people go, that's just not you. When I go down through this list, I see my reaction in the second half of those things. Bitter, defensive, self-pity. How about you? In other words, how the world defines and portrays greatness is irrelevant for a Christian. And we cannot just be this way. This is something because of our bent, because we're just kind of got this, this bent to want every one of those things. We have to help each other in the word of God and by the power of his spirit realize that it's not to be sought after. There's nothing better than doing something for somebody, smiling and looking in their eyes and they know it. And that's more thanks than we deserve even there. Or praying in secret for somebody and then seeing God do something in their life. That's more than enough. So the first step in learning to put off desiring the greatness that the world commends is to recognize how incredibly opposite true greatness is and to accept God's perspective. I mean, think about it. Accept it. Verse 45 is the reason why. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom here refers to the price paid to deliver someone from slavery or imprisonment. The price of freedom from sin and condemnation is Jesus' life given for us. Since the elect are ransomed from the wrath of God, the ransom was offered to God himself. Do you realize how offensive that is to many people in our day? Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath, not for his own sins, but as the means of ransoming many. Jesus is teaching very plainly that his own willingness to humble himself to the point of giving his life as a ransom for many must be reflected in his disciples and by extension to all of his followers down through the ages. We cannot atone for anyone's sins. We can't. But we must show Christ's love to others. Did James and John ever get this? How does John refer to himself in the gospel he wrote? Never, as I, John, write this. When he's talking about stuff that happens with the apostles, what does he call himself? The disciple whom Jesus loved. 
Why do you think he did that? Because he knew his heart was thunder. What a great reminder. And James was the first apostle that was martyred. John wrote this in his first letter, John 3, 16. It's easy to remember because this is 1 John 3, 16. We usually get the other one. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It's one another. We get to celebrate what we've just been talking about today in the Lord's Supper. And obviously this is a spiritual meal to help us remember what these truths are that we've just looked at in our passage. This meal is appointed for my soul, your soul. Think of what Jesus said, I am the bread of life. We need spiritual nourishment, and that happens when we focus on and we believe Christ and how the Word of God portrays Him and what He says through His Word, what He's done. Paul writes that the cup of blessing that we bless is is it not a participation or a communion in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation or a communion in the body of Christ? This is a reality that's hard to describe. So the Reformed confessions and catechisms don't really give an exhaustive explanation like we would like to read of everything that goes on when we partake of this sacrament. But even though that is true, we do what Christ instructed us to do in regularly taking the bread and the cup in this supper because it does help us remember, it does nourish our souls to realize that we are in him. We are joined together, not because of location or any other reason, but because we are in Christ together as his people. 